Welcome to Hearthside Salons, talks and conversations to feed your creative fire. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you a guest worth listening to. The artist Paul Whitehead is an iconoclast and an institution, a man and a woman an anti-zealot and a deeply spiritual person. The thing about Paul is, he makes contradictions harmonious in his work and his life. He says that, as an artist, you've got to be able to suffer the tomatoes being thrown at you. And if you're not getting tomatoes, it means you need to push your art further. The thing I first noticed about Paul when I met him years ago is his deep compassion for everyone and the joy with which he approaches life. It's the kind of thing that, when you're around it, you wonder if your life could look more like that too. The first thing I want to talk about is your your evolution as an artist and a human being is it's such a gradual thing. You know, I was looking back over your story and I can't pinpoint one moment when you were like light bulb, like this is who this is. Uh, this is what I'm doing now. You know, like it seems like it was such a gradual shift. So like take us back to the beginning. You're a little boy. You're drawing spitfires in a blitz bunker during, you know, the end of World War II, do you, do you think at that moment I'm an artist or what, like, what is, what was it like for you being a little kid? Um, it's, it's kind of strange because you, you've got to realize that it's, it's your life, right? You're in this thing and it's just gradually evolving. And I think as you get older, you get, you get a chance to look back. Yeah. Because you, you're in the event as it happens through your life, right? And you're just doing whatever is thrown at you. The world comes at you in a certain way and you deal with it. Maybe you've got a sort of ideal or a goal in your mind, but you don't think about it at the time. So I'm, I'm very aware now that in my life, I've had key people come into my life at certain times, you know? Yeah. Well, I was, I was artistic from when I was very, very small. I mean, three or four yeah. years old, I was inclined to draw, you know? And I found that at home... If I sat and did my drawing, my family left me alone. My mm. brothers and sisters would leave me alone. My mother and father would leave me alone. And I was in my own kind of world, right? Uh, it, it fascinated me. The idea of drawing was, was like you could think of something and you could actually make it happen on a piece of paper. And other people could see it as real, you know. Yeah. There was a magic to that to me. It was very, very magic. And at school, people used to sort of say, they used to challenge me, you know. <laughs> They'd say, hey, Paul, can you draw a horse with a fish's tail? And you say, of course I can. And you <laughs> draw it, you know. And that was magic to them. But then I think my parents in particular took an active role in trying to knock it out of me. And I, I've looked back on that retrospectively. And I think it was for my protection. They had this idea that if I did that for a living, I'd be starving. You know, I'd, I'd be yeah. on the breadline all the time. So they tried to coerce me into some useful occupation, never seeing art as at all useful. And so I, I, I sort of, I bought into it. But in my mind, I went, no, I enjoy doing this. Why can't I do it? Then when I was about 14 or 15, a key figure came into my, an art teacher at school. Mm. And he kind of, he saw something in what I was doing and he took me under his wing 
not only at school, he'd take me home to have dinner with him and his wife. And he was married to a French woman who was kind of bohemian. She was a bit of a beatnik, you know. And I just saw their lifestyle as like totally different to mine. I mean, they had wine with their dinner and, you know, they had all these exotic things to eat. And the clothes that they wore were different to my parents. You know, the, there was art on the wall all around them. And the guy just opened the door to me and he said, yeah, you can do this. You know, you can do this as a living. And it was like one of the biggest eye openers in my life because suddenly I realized my parents weren't right. Mm. And it was the first time I'd seen through, you know, well, what they're telling me isn't right. And so I, I jumped at the chance and consequently I got a scholarship to Oxford and went off on that course, right? Yeah. I, I think I mean, everybody must have that. There must be key people in everybody's life, you know? Yeah. I think we've we found that in the people we've talked to that there's there's a moment when a key mentor comes in and it's usually often not someone from the family, but someone who believes in you and who says, who shows you there's another path possible, which I think is kind of magic. Yeah. Also, this, this teacher, Mr. Reese, I love him dearly. He's still alive, actually. Wow. He also taught me what you mentioned earlier, the playfulness of art. Mm. Art should not be a serious, you know, intellectual thing. It can be if you want it to be that way. But he, he sort of showed me aside by showing me different artists whose work was kind of playful and whimsical, satirical, you know, and I went, oh, it doesn't have to be totally academic. It can be like you saying, hey, this is me. This is what I think about that. Or this is what I think about this, you know. Yeah. This is another huge realization. Yeah, I, I love that because I think parents, I'm sure obviously they were trying to protect you. And, you know, art for a lot of parents is that's your fault. You know, what's your fallback so that you, you know, that can't be a real job. Um, and especially coming out of the war, I'm imagining they were quite, protective and quite like let's be practical here my brother and i talk about it a lot because my brother's he's seven years younger than me but we both grew up in that that post-war england you know mm -hmm. and the whole vibration of england then was rationing mm -hmm. and being very frugal with things right so we were taught when we were kids never to throw anything away right don't throw that piece of string away. You might be able to use it later, you know, <laughs> or don't, don't waste this. I'm still like that today. I don't waste paintbrushes. I clean my brushes all the time. And, and we've, we've been talking about it lately. Where we're trying to break out of that. It is okay to throw stuff away. Okay don't to let go. <laughs> use it, right? So my way of doing it was I used it in my art. I'd, I'd take stuff and do collages with it and, yeah. My brother does the same. My brother is a great scrapbook guy. You know, he does huge scrapbooks. Well, that, that, that's one thing I was going to say is when I first met you, I thought, oh, you're you're the black sheep of the family. You must be. But then I met your brother and I'm like, nope, you guys are both really creative and re really different paths and definitely not like the staid button up British, you know, neither of you are accountants. Let's put it that way. Right, right. There's two of us. And he's no shade. the same. He makes amazing musical instruments but a lot of it is from stuff that's been thrown away you know boxes or or tin boxes or something that would be tossed away he makes an instrument out of them so but that i love that too because that's the playfulness that's like you know looking at an object and going well what can i do with this 
in a way that the average person wouldn't necessarily see anything but a tin box that had been thrown away and would right. not think of it in another way. I think my greatest joy is when, when I see someone look at a piece of my art and they smile. Mm. That's my biggest joy. I go, oh, great. I made a connection, you know. Yeah. I don't well, understand, like, oh, what's this what am I supposed to take? Yeah. <laughs> your art, well, your art is especially, you know, I would say especially lately, but that's ridiculous. Your art always is very provocative and very, especially like thinking about the question series where it's, you're, you're directly asking, you know, what do you think of this? And people have, it's like a Rorschach test. People have a reaction one way or another. Um, and it, you know, usually makes them kind of go, oh, huh. And so that is very connecting. And it is, I, I've never stood before one of your pieces and gone, I wonder what this means. Or, you know, right. Right. It, even if the meaning is quote unquote, right or wrong, it's like, I get a meaning. And yeah, there's a lot usually, to look at. It's usually pretty obvious. Uh, I, I did a show when I lived in Bali and, and the guy that reviewed the show, he made a very interesting comment. He said, I'd done these 20 paintings. Each one had a single word question. And he said, as hard as I tried to kind of hide my hand, he said, I knew the artist before I met him just by the questions that he asked, which is kind of interesting because it's like you try to be sort of a little sort of esoteric or a little whimsical, but the questions you ask give you away. Interesting. Well, you're interested in certain subjects. Yeah. Yeah. But that also says something to me about you sharing who you are you know, which I feel for most artists is a, is a necessity. It's not just a, cause you, cause you know, maybe it would put food on the table, but like, if I can ask this in a sort of a weird way, why do you need to be an artist? <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't really think I need to be an artist. It's just my DNA, you know? I, I, I just like to uh, express myself. Yeah. And kind of put it out there and see, does anyone else feel the same as me about this? You know, that's that's kind yeah. of my basic motive. I don't have any great intellectual drive, you know. It's right, just but... what I do. I mean, I'm lucky. I, I say all the time how lucky I am. Mm-hmm. I have a friend that comes by very often. She's a biochemist, right? And she just says to me, you are so lucky what you do. She comes by and she sees me playing, you know. Mm-hmm. This is what you do all the time, and you get paid for it, and you're having fun. She's, I'm so jealous, and so it's like, well, it's just decisions that I made, you know. Yeah, well, I feel like you are the embodiment of that. Find something you love to do, and you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, kind of thing, because it's like, yeah. I, I met a guy uh, 20 years ago, and he was a multi-millionaire from selling Amway, <laughs> and he was like a real straight suit guy, Republican guy, right? And I got to meet him and I was fascinated. I said to him, so tell me, what's the secret of being a millionaire? You know, expecting some real you know, profound answer. And he said to me, well, it's real simple. He said, find a thing in your life that you will do for free and do that. And you'll be a millionaire. And I said, well, how does that apply to you? He says, well, I love talking to people. I'm a salesman. So I got the per- I go up to anybody in the street and have you heard about Mway? Blah, 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 blah. So that's it. Do what what you do for the love of it. Yeah, if you can do that for your occupation. That's amazing. What a gift, you know. It's such a gift. So talk. I want I want to talk a little bit about time out 
and that like that time in London, you you know, we're post-war London and now we're in 60s London, which I feel like we've never seen a revolution like that since in terms of style and art and personal expression and all of that. So can you tell us a little bit about like, what was that like, you know, and getting into Time Out and how that all went? It was fascinating because it was the only time in my life that I really felt we could change the world. Mm. I mean, there was a feeling that this is a movement. There's a lot of us. And forget, don't forget, this is a time before mass communication. I mean, mm. you know, all we had was telephones, really. I mean, it wasn't FedEx, wasn't, and it wasn't TV all the time, right? But we learned, oh, there's the same thing going on in San Francisco. Mm. And the same thing is going on in New York and Berlin and so on, right? And it was this great feeling of, I mean, it sounds very hippie now, right? But it was this great thing of love. Love will change the world. And we all kind of like, yeah, what, a, what an idea. Do you think that's for real? Mm. And it kind of gained momentum, you know. And of course, the Beatles were the prime driving force behind it. <laughs> in London at that time, there was a magazine called What's On. And it was a guide to what was on in London. But it was a very straight guide to what was on in London. Mm. It was like, you know, the theatres and so on and so on. So three of us got together and we said, we need to do another guide to London, you know, because there's always other stuff that nobody knows about. So we got together and the first one we did was like a broadsheet. We folded it four times and it, okay. it listed all the things like uh, the alternative theater, the alternative cinema that was going on, things like the arts labs. Uh, I remember we were the first publication in England to carry a list of all the drag shows that were going on. Oh my on. goodness. Because in London at that time, they used to do drag shows on the bars in these real down and out, you know, working class bars in certain parts of London. They do the drag on the bar. Wow. It was outrageous, right? So we started highlighting these kind of things and we caught on really, really quick. And we got, we got labeled the alternative guide to London. Okay. And I'll never forget, I, I was the art director and we were gradually, you know, becoming more and more popular, more and more popular. Then we got our first ad. <laughs> <laughs> we got our first ad for liquor. Whole page ad for like some whiskey. And we went, yeah. We've made it. We've made it. Next week we got like a cigarette ad, you know. And that was like, yeah, we made it. And it became like the touchstone. Wow. And of course, we were like ground zero for all the alternative culture going on in London. You know, people would come in our office either to have a record review or to take an ad or just make us aware of something that was going on. So it was like an amazing clearinghouse yeah. of all that information, you know. That sounds that's amazing. How got, that's how I got to know a lot of the bands that I know. Well, that's what was my next question. Is that how you met Genesis? I met Genesis not by time out, by, uh, by having a show. I had a show in the West End of London. I was doing pen and ink and watercolor in those days. And I, Peter Gabriel saw it. And, oh, you're the guy to do our record cover. Like, really? Okay. <laughs> Amazing. It, it sounds all like at that time, you were, everyone was sort of free to make it up as they went and invent, just invent ways of being. And it's like, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
we had a couple of things happen with time out was kind of interesting um we were beginning to get known so if some big event happened they would refer to us on bbc television on the news you know and time out said blah 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 right wow so one day a guy walked into the office and he said he had an exclusive for us a political exclusive we weren't a political magazine i mean we we kind of highlighted things like demonstrations mm. what the time was where it was but we weren't you know we didn't have a political slant so he said okay what's your story then so he said I used to work for the Home Office in in London, and he mm. said the Home Secretary hired me to do a series of bank robberies in Ireland. What? And to blame them on the IRS, right? So we the IRA like, or the IRS? The IRA, sorry, IRA. <laughs> Very different. <laughs> Not the IRS. The IRS should probably know to blame on the IRA and say I'm doing this is for money for the IRA, right? Oh my so god. This and we, we checked out the guy. He was, you know, he had worked for the home office. So we had a little discussion and we said, well, should we publish this? I mean, it's out of our bailiwick, it's not our sort of thing we do, but it's sensational, right? Yeah. So I think the vote was like five to four or something, you know, it was like borderline to do it. So we printed it and the shit hit the fan. I mean, it was unbelievable. We were raided. All the people that got our magazine by subscription got it a day early. Oh, my God. Because it's an app first, right? They all got their magazines. All the ones we sent out on the street were seized. <gasps> we all got arrested. We oh were charged God. with an offense under the Official Secrets Act and so on. Because this guy was tr true. He'd really done this, right? So we had this big, uh, you know, sort of trial by press, you know. Wow, you can't do this. This is this infringes freedom of the press, and they were saying no, it's it's official secrets and all that stuff. So we were like, wow. my my thing was, it's nothing to do with me. I'm just the art director. I have nothing to do with the, with the editorial. Nothing to do with the writing. I just do the pictures. So they let me go. They kept the other guys in jail for like three or four days, right? Eventually, let them go. The thing was. Our circulation doubled overnight. I bet. So the editors are going, oh, this is good for business. <laughs> it's great, right? So they decided to get a little bit more political. And they had like a column to comment on what was going on. And it was, it was okay, you know. And then we got raised again later by uh, the Maoists. <laughs> what? Our office got taken over by the Maoists. Because they decided that we weren't left enough. Oh, my God. Oh, the other thing was, when we got raided the first time, they took all my uh, file cabinets with all my photographs in it, right? I had tons and tons of really great photographs, particularly stills from movies, the movie reviews, right? They took my file cabinet. After hassling and hassling, I got it back. But half of the pictures were gone, which was a real drag, right? Yeah. So the Maoists come in the office, same thing. They occupy the office. We actually went and did an, you know, an alternative version of the paper in the editor's home on the kitchen table, right? Oh we put out the magazine sort of under duress, right? Yeah. A big sensation. Circulation doubled again. So it's like, hey, this is good for business, right? Oh but we God. were a target. We, we were considered like we're the alternative, but we weren't alternative enough. 
because our wow. magazine was pretty, you know, well designed. It wasn't shoddy. It was very slick. But we needed to go a little bit further to the left, which we never did. It was fascinating. Interesting. Well, so <clears throat> you said that Peter Gabriel came and saw your pen and ink watercolor show. Um, and we've talked to you and I about this extensively. What the give and take then I love the concept of artists influencing each other and the give and take that can happen between artists. You did the covers, that record covers for them. Can you talk about the red dress and the fox? Well, actually, it was, it was based on the, the first cover that we did that was controversial was the nursery crime cover. Because mm -hmm. it was depicting someone playing croquet with a little brother's head, right? Mm -hmm. Which was kind of... because. Uh, Primary members of Genesis were public schoolboys. They were you know, from upper class families that had good education. And they wanted to have a go at the English aristocracy or upper class, mm -hmm. right? And croquet was a symbol of that, right? So the second one, they wanted to have a go at some other English institution. And it turned out we decided it was going to be fox hunting. Because fox hunting is a ridiculous sport, you know. So it came from that. And the idea was that, you know, the fox is always known as being cunning. It always finds a way to get away from the hunters, right? And I, I'd already got an interest in the whole cross-dressing thing. And I thought, well, why not put the fox in a dress? Also, at that time, uh, two of my friends had come to America on tour with bands. And they come back to England using the expression, she's a fox. Or she's a foxy babe, right? Never heard that before. So that fed into it as well. So there was a foxy babe eluding the hunters by dressing as a woman. But then um, you told us, you you'd talked about Peter then wearing the red dress himself. He decided it would be a, a good thing to come on stage. And he didn't tell the other guys in the band. <laughs> he, he made a mask. Well, someone made it for him of a fox head and he borrowed one of his wife's red dresses and just appeared on stage, which was totally shocking. I mean, yeah. The interesting thing was it got them on the front page of Melody Maker. Mm. So it was a lot to do with their initial success, you know, yeah. the shocking aspect of it. Well, that seems to be a theme for you and, you know, the and and for them, but just the it's the, the shock, the things that shocked from Time Out that got you guys on the map. And it's, you know, that shock that got them on Melody Maker. And um, it, in today, today, I think people would refer to it as disruptor. You were disruptors, uh, which, you know, is always the thing that gets attention. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. But it's, it seems sort of strange when you look back at it. I mean, different times, you know, I mean, that cover for, for Nursery Crime was just a, a Victorian little girl with a croquet mallet and she was about to hit the ball, which was, was her brother's head, right? Mm -hmm. That was considered shocking. <laughs> now, this is before all the slasher movies. You know, you got to take that. Ah. This is 1970, right? 71. Right. 70. It wasn't the horrible, gory stuff going on in the movies that there is now, right? So it was considerably naive in a way that that would shock people, you know? I know, it's like... Um, as you'd say that, I'm like, oh, how quaint. Like, I, w I wish I could be shocked by something that vanilla. I mean, I have to work hard today to, to do something, wouldn't I? To shock people. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, so you mentioned you'd already been interested in cross-dressing. Talk a, a little bit more about that. Um, in London or then when, when you come came here? Uh, well, you've got to understand also, growing up in the 60s, right, there was, there was a much less rigid line between male and female yeah. clothes, you know. I used, to borrow, I used to borrow girlfriends' blouses and stuff like that, you know. And my clothes were very, you know, frilly, frilly shirts, velvet suits, you know. I used to wear like a crystal around my neck. I used to have these boots with little heels on them, right? So it was kind of a little crossing the line. Maybe I'd wear a little eye makeup now and again, right? It wasn't considered weird. It was just, I'd wear earrings, you know. Sounds very glam, very, very um, of that time. Well, it was, well, I'm talking about 67, 68, around that time. So, mm-hmm. no, everybody was doing it. You wore scarves and, you know, I, I like sort of soft materials. I never liked sort of leather and stuff like that. I used to like soft stuff, right? So very often I'd see a girlfriend, I'd say, hey, can I wear that shirt? Oh, sure, you know, it wasn't, wasn't considered weird, you know. So that was my normal way. I mean, I used to cause a sensation when I went home, you can imagine. Right? <laughs> Your mother. My, well, my father, right? My father one time decided he was going to like sort of embarrass me. So he went upstairs and he got one of my sister's hair ribbons. And he came down and decided to tie my hair in a ponytail. My reaction was, what a great idea. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> it was an attempt to shame me, so to make me look ridiculous, right? And then I realized, like, you know, you see pictures of George Washington. Yeah. Ponytail, right? it was, and a ribbon. Yeah. So, yeah, and then that, that led to, like, an interest in, in sort of dabbling with wigs and stuff. And I, I realized it was an opportunity to create another personality, even make art different, you know? Yeah. So tell us about that. Like when, when, when did that first become an official thing? Another sensibility. It was, it was kind of a reaction because my, my male work is somewhat detailed, Mm -hmm. uh, very kind of worked out. I mean, there's drawings made before and I work out all the angles and perspective and all the rest of it. Time consuming. I mean, an average painting would take me, you know, a week, two weeks, you know, sometimes a month if it was really, really detailed. And I found that I'd be in the studio, I'd be working away. I get to the end of the day and my shoulders and my back were like so painful, you know. I kind of stand up and then I always used to keep lots of canvases around my studio. So I just realized if I just got a canvas and just slapped paint around, it was a way of like loosening myself up, you know. And I slashed around with, with stuff and usually I put them in my storage space. I didn't really take them seriously. And then a couple of years later, I'd see a couple of these things. And I go, that's not a bad abstract painting, you know. Mm-hmm. That's not at all bad. So I'd pull it out and I'd take it back to the studio to work on it. And one day, I don't know, to this day, I don't know what it was. I made a connection between these abstract paintings and stretching stockings or pantyhose over them. And the first one I did, it just clicked. It was like, oh, yeah. The thing was, it only took 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. 
So it was it was a whole different aesthetic. It was like working very quick in the moment with no judgment, no goal in mind, just enjoying it. And you've seen me work. You've seen me yeah. play on those pieces. You're just totally playing with the colors and seeing what happens. And you add water and it all blends together and it runs and whatever happens, then boom, you're done. If it starts to look like a painting, I stop. Hmm. As soon as I start to see like the human hand in it, I stop. And then I, I add the, the fabric over the top of it. And that usually takes a couple of minutes and I'm done. And well, it, it's, what I'm hearing is it's play. You're getting back to the spirit of play that brought you to being an artist. It's totally playful, yeah. Sometimes I, I think it's, in a way, it's a shame that I got labeled for doing these realistic paintings. Hmm. I mean, it, it, it's been a living. It's, I've done very well from it. To me, the real essence of me as an artist is the more playful stuff. Hmm. That makes sense. Just to see, because I'm constantly exploring. Let's see what happens if I do this with that. And I used to mix all different types of paints together and thinners and stuff. And they used to bubble and, you know, hmm. create horrible fumes. And you never knew what was going to happen. Well, I certainly respond. I, mean, I respond to the playfulness for sure. I mean, all the pieces of yours that I have are Trisha except for the one um, landscape and the prop landscapes, of course, too. Um, so when, when did you decide this playfulness should be under the aegis of Trisha versus Paul? Like, how did that evolve? It's just natural. <laughs> and the interesting thing is people often ask me, so do you have to be dressed as Trisha to do that? And I go, oh, no, it's a frame of mind. Mm. it's like I, I turn off the analytical detail-oriented artist and turn on the, the playful artist it helps if I'm, I'm wearing the clothes and all the rest of it right but it's not necessary it's, it's a frame of mind it, it allows me to do that with with no comeback you know yeah I love that because I feel like what you succeed in doing is finding the full range of expression as an artist and as a human because you're not just one thing. You can then find this other area of expression, which I think is kind of what every artist is trying to do. Like, what's my fullest expression? The interesting thing is one of the people that really turned me on to that possibility was, was Marcel Duchamp, a uh. French artist, right? Because he had an alter ego, female alter ego. But I didn't his know that. reason was he said he could do all this weird stuff and he could disown it because it wasn't him, it was her, mm. you know. That was his motivation in the beginning. So he did these little assemblage things and jokey kind of things. But if the art world was sort of inclined to be serious about that, he could just totally disown it. That wasn't my idea at all. I, I totally own all of it. It's all me. Mm, yeah. I'm totally responsible. You want to talk about it? You want to, you know, critique it? Go ahead, you know. So what was it like the first time you did a one-man, one-woman joint show? with Paul and Trisha. <laughs> Fascinating. In fact, I'm still getting feedback from people. And that's a long time ago, right? Um, initially, it was interesting because I was, I was, I committed to do this show. One side of the gallery was Paul, the other side of the gallery was Trisha, right? So it came time for me to send out invitations. So I started to go through my, my email list, right? 
And I started to go, would they, would they get it? Would they? Well, no, he wouldn't get it. He's too uptight, you know. <laughs> Going to the list, sort of eliminating people I didn't want to invite. And I got halfway through and I went, what the hell? I'm just going to invite everybody, right? So I checked with a friend of mine, another artist who was, who was also transgender and all the rest of it. And I said, so what, what do you think? Shall I, is there any downside to inviting everybody? And he said, no. He said, invite everybody. If you don't, you'll always regret it. Mm. And I said, well, that's okay for you to say. He says, no, believe me, I did it. And he said, I had three or four friends that were like pissed off and disowned me. But he said, eventually they came around again and said, so what is this all about? You know? So I always remember, I remember really clearly selecting my whole email list and going, send. Mm. I mean, I'm talking about people from all facets of my life, right? Yeah. And off it went. And the people that came to the show was, was also very interesting. <laughs> people I never expected would come. And what we decided to do is it was going to be like 7 till 10. So 7 o'clock till 8 or 8.30 or so, Paul would be there. You know, the record cover guy, blah, blah, blah. Meet all those people that came to see Paul. And then about 8.30, I disappeared for half an hour, went into the room at the back of the I got done up and appeared in the gallery, right? <laughs> I will never forget some of the faces. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, they saw me, right? And it was like, then they realized it was me because someone would say, hey, Trisha. <laughs> One of my friends is still to this day seriously disturbed by that. Really? All these years later, it's, it's got to be, when was it, 2004? He's still disturbed by it. Wow. Because he, he knew it was me, but he, he also saw this feminine me. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was pretty good. I mean, I did a good job. It wasn't, you know, I pulled it off, right? Right, right. He's like, wow. In fact, women were coming up to me and saying, where do you get that jacket? You know, where do you get that necklace and so on? But yeah, it was... And I always remember also, I, I saw certain people from different aspects of my life talking to each other. Hmm. And I was like, what the hell are they talking about? I wanted to be a fly on the wall. You know? <laughs> How did that guy get to talk to that guy or that woman talk to that man from totally different aspects of my life? Even to the extent some of my cross-dresser friends were talking to male friends of mine who I knew were homophobic, you know. Oh, my gosh. It's like, what's kind of... so. One of them I walked over to see, you know, like kind of eavesdrop. What are they talking about? So my cross-dresser friend and my other friend are talking about motorbikes. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, really? So it was also a way of mixing my mm. life, you know, rather well, than having this part here separate and this part here separate, it's kind of they fused together. Well, and also I feel like once you realized you could, you didn't have to control it, kind of like, you're, you're even starting to create as Trisha at all. You don't have to control the guest list. You can allow people the freedom to choose if they yep. want to come. And yep. if, and then once they come, who they'll talk to. And it kind of like, that's when the beauty happens. Yeah. When you and surrender I, control. I did, I did temporarily lose a couple of male friends. Mm. There was a couple of my male friends I used to play soccer with. Mm. We used to have like a, a thing here on a Sunday afternoon, just you know, kicking the ball around. Right. One of them was Italian. One was American. And they just went. Aww. 
don't know about that. But sure as hell, within like six months, maybe nine months, they called me, right? And they said, so what, what's this all about? You know, I mean, the fact it was me, right? It was Paul doing it. What's it all about? We need to know more about this. And they'd never spoken to anybody about that realm of life, you know. Wow. Which I found fascinating. So after a while, I began to see myself as kind of a spokesman, you know, or a spokesperson. Mm -hmm. at, at gallery openings, I, I often found myself talking to somebody, either male or female, and they've never spoken to a cross-dresser before in their life. So they say, you know, you're the first I've ever spoken to. And you're quite intelligent, you know, <laughs> you're quite articulate. So that was another thing for me. It made me realize that you don't have to be really overt and obvious, you know. Just do your thing. Move through life and yeah. things will come to you, you know. Yeah, it's, well, I mean, I've I've been out with Trisha several times and always had a good time. And I noticed the first time... I felt like I had to be very protective. I was, you know, like, you don't know what people are going to, if people are going to react negatively or, you know, you just don't know. And then I kind of realized, what am I doing? I don't need to protect Trisha. Like, she, you just, there's such a, there's such a, just kind of an aura around you, around her, that it's just like, yeah, it's fine. And, and Got that switchblade in that purse as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always, no, you, then, it, then it helped me you relax. Realize, you realize how that climate has changed as well. Yes. Very, very different going out in the 1980s. You know, there was, there was obvious discrimination and yeah. you wouldn't be let into a restaurant because they were embarrassed and stuff like yeah. that. Now it's completely, I mean, I see these, the young kids today doing it in their 20s. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I go to a transgender group here in, in Ventura and they've got totally different issues. I mean, they, a lot of them can't really decide what gender they are and they, they don't want to be represented by either. You know, they want sure. to be neutral, gender neutral, right? That's their issue because society has accepted them so much that the, the initial issue of going out in clothes of the opposite sex isn't even an issue anymore. Mm. How do they respond to you as like? Well, I'm I'm the voice of experience, you know. It's like, yeah. They they said so they're nice to you. And I I did have a thing uh, about a year ago. There was a uh, in a club here. There was a, a woman with a little table, and she was organising a transgender art show in Ventura, right? Okay. So I said, okay, fine. Yeah. So I said, what do I need to do? And she looked at me and she went, "Oh, you're too old." Oh, and I went, what? She said, oh, yeah, you're, you're much too old, which is discrimination of another kind. You know? Yes, absolutely. I said, but I've been doing this for years. If anybody deserves to be in a transgender show, it's me, right? Yeah. And uh, so I wasn't allowed in the show, but I went to the show and it was it was really lame. <laughs> of course, it's more it gets more difficult as you get older. Yeah. To go out. Talk about that. The neck. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you. although I'm, I'm coming to terms with that now, I'm, I'm fine. It's like I look the way I look. Yeah. I obviously can't look like I did 20, 30 years ago, you know. So, yeah, I'll be a mature. Yeah, that's something every woman faces. <laughs> right. 
Um, talk to me about, so one of my favorite things in your art evolution is the <coughs> ephemeral nature of your sand, your mandalas, your sand paintings. Oh, yeah. Talk about how did you get, how were you drawn to start moving away from, not away from paint, you still obviously use paint, but what drew you to that? Well, that's the nature of being an artist, right? Um, if you're at all prolific or you, you do a regular turnout of, of stuff, right? You finish up with all these paintings, right? Because you, you can't sell all of them. You, you right. It be stuff that doesn't sell. So I always had a storage space. And I go to the storage space, and I look at all this stuff, and it's like, wow, there's got to be a way around this. Actually, the digital thing has made that a little easier, because mm. now I don't even maybe have an original. I just create it in, in the computer, right, which is great. But I always remember I went to see at the, uh, the Hammond Museum in uh, Westwood, the Tibetan monks making mm -hmm. one of these mandalas. It blew my mind. It just totally blew my mind. I, I watched them. I went every day for a week and watched the progress of the thing. And I got talking to them. I got to learn what the aesthetic was, what the history was. And then the whole thing of the impermanence just blew me away. And I just, I want to do this. I want to do this. This is something I think I'd really get into. The fact that you give it up. Mm -hmm. It's all about the act of creating and the intention behind the creation, and then you let it go, you throw it away. So I, I tried to get one of the tools that they use. They, they use these long uh, the conical funnels things, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been talking to this guy for about a week. He was one of the, one of the minor monks. And I said, can I get hold of, they're, they're called Chakpurs. Can I get hold of one of those Chakpurs? Oh, no. You've got to do like a 10-year apprenticeship in the monastery, you know, wow. before you do that. And I said, well, look, I'm not interested in doing what you guys do. I would never, ever even think of trying to do anything like your religious symbolism. I just want to play around and see how it works for me to make images with sand. Oh, let me talk to the Lama, you know, and they talked to the Lama and they said, no, it wasn't possible. About a year later, I went to a musician's house I was doing the cover for, uh, and on his mantelpiece was one of these tools. And I said, boy, you have a check pool. Where'd you go? He said, what is it? I said, <laughs> you don't know what it is? He said, no, we bought it in a, in a, a jumble sale or a rummage sale or something. <laughs> I said, oh, it's a tool that the Tibetans use to make sand paints. I've been trying to get one of those for years. He said, oh, it's yours. Here you go. So he gave it to me. And from then I started to experiment and I love it. You know, the whole thing is you create the piece with a positive intention in mind. The idea is as you pour out this sand, you know, grain by grain, that intention is in, imbued into the, into the sand and into the design that you make. So um, you can have a thing like loving kindness, peace, I've, I've been doing, I did one last week, and the theme was no fear. Mm. And the whole thing was imbued with the idea, no fear. So it's in the sand painting, and then you destroy it. You let it go, and then you toss it into the water, into the ocean or the river or a lake. To me, that was like the most perfect circle. You've, you've put yourself into it, but you haven't put your ego into it. Mm. 
there's also an aspect of it I like about how perfect do you want it to be? Mm-hmm. I mean, you could work for, for years just making every little grain of sand absolutely perfect. Yeah? And that's the whole thing you go through as you make it. So I, I, I work with the, the Chakpur and brushes to make the sand as perfect as I want it to be. And it's, it's amazing. When you let it go, there's a sense of sort of liberation as well. Mm-hmm. Wow. Even as you said that, like I felt myself just kind of uh, like take a breath and let it out. And it was like a lightness of the release. But there was also a, a, a really big lesson for me in it, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I study is, is the uh, Bhagavad Gavita. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of my books I read all the time. It's, you know, and I, I read the verse with no commentary. Just read the straight verse, right? And one of the things in there that gave me trouble was a section called the fruits of labor. Mm. How you're able to create without any expectation. Mm. You're supposed to create just for the sheer love of creating and don't expect the world to give you anything. This is like, okay, well, my thoughts are, well, I live in a capitalist society. If I'm going to work, I want to be paid for it. Right. Basic common facts, right? So I struggled with it a long time, long, long time. What's the, what's the way around this? How can I create without expecting to be compensated in some way, right? So I went, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a sand painting with that idea in mind. I'm just going to do it and work away and then see what happens. And the thing in the Gita, it says you will be rewarded. Mm. But don't expect the reward to be something you want. You know, God, the creator, will reward you for the creative energy that you put out, but you don't know where it's going to come from, Mm -hmm. what form it's going to come in. So I did the first one, right? Threw it in the ocean. So waited, you know. A couple of days later, I got the most amazing blessing. It came into my life. And something that I would never, ever expect who knows where it came from? It just and it was like perfect. It was like, wow, almost like the way I got that shakpur. Mm-hmm. It just came into my life, and it was like, wow. Thought about it for a couple of days, and I went, is there any connection? I think there's a connection between that and that. So then I tried again. Right, I did another one. The same thing happened. And the blessings that I'm talking about are, are like really obscure. Stuff you don't even know that you know, you need or you want, you know. You can kind of go, okay. So now it's become a sort of game with me. <laughs> and so I do it and it's like, well, okay, you know better than I do. Yeah. You know what I need, what I want, what I need to learn. Or it could be a book. You could come across a book that's perfect for that moment, right? Or someone says something to you. It just sinks in with your life where you're at at that moment. It's like. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I love it. So it's it's quite playful. And it's taken the seriousness out of making the sand paintings as well. Because I'm I'm having sort of a joyful experience. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I've started, you know, as you know, I've sort of started taking different art lessons. And I can tell the ones when I'm just having fun and I don't expect anything of myself are the ones that I really end up loving what I did. And the ones where I'm like, it has to be this way, or I have to be like, it has to be good. 
quote unquote, you know, then those are the ones that end up looking the most tortured or are just, they're just flat. It's not satisfying. It's not a fun experience. So, well, yeah. That's one of my keen, keen things about creativity is the self-critic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do a, an exercise, two-minute painting exercise, which I've done with all groups of people, right? And that's one of the things about that. We, we get together. Um, I've done it with teenagers on parole. I've done it with battered women. I've done it with the LAPD, mm-hmm. teachers, all different types of people, kids, everybody. And you get together and you have paper and paint and brushes and water and everything, right? And you say, okay, we're going to paint. Everybody take whatever paint they need and put it on that plate, but don't start. We're all going to start together. So everybody's thinking, you know, oh, okay, well, I'm going to do my normal yeah, little picture of a pussycat that I always do or my house or whatever, right? So then I say, okay, you have two minutes to get all that paint onto that piece of paper. Go. And they're like, what? And I have like cheerleaders, you know, that doing a countdown. Okay, 30 seconds is gone. Okay, a minute's gone. And what it does is it puts them in a space where the critic is temporarily put to sleep. They don't have time to be critical. They're just like in, almost in this panic of doing this on this paper and they're very cheerleading them, right? And everybody has the same experience. They say, it's the first time I ever got out of myself. Mm. I was totally into this little thing, doing this in in two minutes that I forgot what I was actually making. And it frees them, you know. Yeah. So that's like you were saying, the things where you're very, very sort of light and airy about what you're making, those are the things that really, to me, matter. Yes. Where it's all planned out and, you know, fussy and so on. No. Yeah. Although some artists, that's their art form. That's the thing they do, you know. Well, it's interesting, especially as you mentioned, the capitalist aspect of creating art and, and needing to be paid or whatever. And um, some people here with us tonight know you and I have created a film, a short film together. And um, it was extremely fun and playful. And it's interesting because I had I have a friend who's a very in you know, very established film industry person. And when we talked about it, um, they, this, this friend said to me, well, it's not going to be, it's not going to be all you think it is because, um, you didn't suffer enough to, to make it. And I thought, what? And it just, I thought that is so fascinating. That's their, their perspective is that for work to be good, you have to suffer. And I thought, well, then that, no, I'm not, I think it is good. And I, I had fun making it and I'm not going to apologize for that. And I'm not going to look for any different kind of work like I want all my work to be fun well otherwise why are you doing it life is too short but I think it speaks to how ingrained that mindset is is that it should be hard I should have to suffer for it I should get paid for it like all of that stuff and what your your perspective is such a just like no let all of that go there's a couple of ways of looking that as as well I mean a lot of artists that is their thing they love to suffer Mm mm-hmm they love to be misunderstood. You know, the world doesn't understand what I'm doing. I'm I'm slaving away here and nobody likes what I'm doing. And, right? Yeah. And they beat themselves and so on. And they also think, I, I had a friend I lived next door to when I lived in downtown LA. It used to take 10 years to do a picture. Oh, my Lord. 10 years. 
Wow. And I used to say to him, why do you beat yourself so much? And there's one picture I remember. It was about four feet square, and it was of a, a, an iris, a big blow-up photographic realistic picture of an iris. I could have done it in two hours. <laughs> but he was beating himself up for 10 years on this thing, right? And he had oh. this other thing where he had to have a certain color, a certain shade of red sort of color. And it was only made by this paint company in Germany. And it took two years, you know, all this stuff, right? And he had to have a certain brush. Wow. Certain this and certain that. And to me, it was like, well, that, that's your thing. I'm, I'm not judgmental about that. If that's your thing, great. It doesn't work for me. Mm -mm. I'm not at all technical. I'm not at all interested in the tools of the trade. You know, it's like just a yeah. cute stick would do, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Like those, I would use those reasons as reasons to stop myself that yeah. I don't have that red and I don't have the fancy brush or whatever. Exactly. And a lot of artists do. I don't have that certain this, that or the other to do this with. Another thing I've noticed over the years going to artist studios, the guys with the amazing studios with all the fantastic equipment don't do much. Mm. They're so in love with the equipment and the tools <laughs> that they don't really ever do anything. You go to a guy's studio, it's a total mess, total tip, you know, there's crap and shit everywhere. He's the guy that's cranking the art out. And it, like I say, he'd paint with a chewed up stick if, he, if he nothing else, right? Yeah. You know, one of the things about creativity I've, I've noticed over the years is a lot of people make excuses not to do something. Yeah. Right. If you want to do something, if the artistic drive or the creative drive is enough, you do it with whatever is to hand. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I need that. Oh, I'll use that bit of paper. I'll screw that bit of paper. I'm going to do that. It will stick this with that. Or you make it work. If, if the urge and the desire is strong enough, nothing will stop you. So do you have any, like, so I want to open this up for questions or comments of, of the people we have here. But uh, before I do, I just want to say, do you have any, words of advice for artists of any age like who, when people when I find myself being stopped by something or let letting myself be stopped by whatever what do you what do you what would you say to an artist just like to get them going creating just just do it just start doing it you know just draw just draw whatever you need to do you know <laughs> and don't listen to anybody don't that's one of the most important things. Don't listen to anybody in terms of critique because nobody knows anything. You know that, right? Yeah. Yeah. See, to me, the, the artist is, is basically, if you're a good artist, you're using your own personal standards and values to get your message across, what you feel strongly about, things you hate, things you love, whatever. That's your own language. And who the hell's got the right to invade that and criticize it? I mean, obviously, if you're putting it up in public, you're, you're asking for that, which is fair game, right? Mm -hmm. Put it up in public, everybody's going to say, oh, well, you know, it would have been better if he'd used blue instead of green, you know. And that's the nature of criticism. I mean, the very first caveman that decided he was going to use a, a sharpened piece of rock must have been criticized. What the hell are you doing? You know, are you crazy? Mm -hmm. And then they go, oh, he's not so crazy after all. It's a good idea, you know. 
I, I always say one of the things about being an artist, you've got to be able to suffer the tomatoes thrown at you. Mm-hmm. And if you're not getting any tomatoes thrown at you, you're not doing a very good job because <laughs> you're not creating either controversy or interest or turning people onto maybe a different way of looking at things. If you're not getting any tomatoes, go a bit further. <laughs> I love that. Okay. I love that. Just, yeah. Yeah. Because there, there's a fearlessness. It's like, you're, yeah, there, you're, you're going to get tomatoes, but then you can have a salad. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Carlo has a question. Carlo, you want to unmute yourself? and? Yeah, I have a question. Um, Paul, I understand that you and Heidi have collaborated on a short film, and I was wondering if you could tell us about that, what it's about, and, and how we can see it. <laughs> Go to the local Cineplex. <laughs> uh, well, once again, it's, it's also in that theme of impermanence that we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier. Um, I wrote a little script, very short script, about a, a young guy goes to the beach with his, um, his canvas and his ease, and he sets up to paint at the beach, and he's, he's all set up, and he's painting away, and about 100 yards down the beach, he sees this old man just above the tide line, and he's exercising and doing stuff. And then he sees him drawing in the sand with a stick. And he's very agitated, very, very animated. You know, he's, he's doing this huge thing in the sand and he finishes it and throws the stick into the ocean and he walks off. Well, of course, the young guy's interested to see what it is he's done in the sand, right? He walks down there and as he gets close, he realizes it's Picasso. And he looks at the piece and sure as hell in the corner, it's signed, Picasso. So he's on the beach all by himself with this giant Picasso. And then he realizes the tide's coming in. So the movie is kind of all the machinations and things he goes through to try and save this sand painting. And then he realizes it's it's not going to happen. So he just lays there and lets the, the tide wash it away, wash over him and so on. And he gets up, walks back, and he sees the stick. The stick has been washed back in onto the sand. He picks up the stick and he thinks maybe, you know, the spirit of Picasso is in this stick. Mm-hmm. So he tries drawing in the sand. Of course, it's, it's not Picasso. Throws it into the ocean, walks back up over to his, his easel on his canvas, packs it up and goes to walk away. And as he walks away over the sand dunes, see Picasso come back down again, pick up the stick and start to draw again. So yes. it's like the world's biggest exosketch. <laughs> well, and the only reason we were able to successfully make the film is because you can make a giant Picasso in the sand. Yeah. <laughs> Not everyone could do that. So, And Paul actually also played Picasso, which was very handy for that. So um you can see my face though, that was good. No, no, but it was yeah, that was really fun. Um and there is they uh it's not v- viewable, you can see a trailer online. You can't see the whole film yet, but I can say we got a distribution deal for it, and so that should be out. I'm expecting news at some point. God oh, knows with, with with all this, it's I don't know when it's gonna happen, but they should be placing it on outlets, channels, things like that. So hopefully oh, we'll be able to share. 
Yeah, this whole corona thing has, has screwed all the festivals and all that sort of thing. Yes, yes. Thing. We were supposed to be in the Newport Beach Film Festival with it last week. And of course, that didn't happen. So who knows? But yeah, I mean, for me, that that's like why, why I wanted to make it was because it was so spoke to me about you as an artist and your commitment to sort of just the ephemeral nature of art and letting letting things go and not being attached and finding the joy in the moment. And I'm like, that's Paul in a nutshell right there. Yep. So that was great. Ephemeral nature of life. Yeah. yeah. Tanya asks, have you ever been plagiarized? Oh, yes. Yes. Talk about that. <laughs> great story. Um, I, I did a cover for a band called Van de Graaff Generator called Porn Hearts. And uh, the record company bought the art. So about two or three years later, someone says to me, oh, I see you're selling Porn Hearts. So I said, what? There was an ad, ad in one of the music papers um, offering the original artwork for Porn Hearts for sale. So I was like fascinated, right? So I was like, I wonder who this is. So I called up the phone number and I said, hey, I see you're selling Paul Whitehead's um, Porn Hearts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, oh, I'm, I'm interested in buying it. So the guy said, oh, okay, well, uh, it was the outskirts of London, you know, come over and we'll show right? So I go over there and it was, a uh, pretty good copy, but not not a good copy because the way I made it was kind of interesting. I made an initial illustration, an image for those that don't know. It's a picture of the Earth from above with all these pawns, you know, from from chess. Mm -hmm. but each pawn is is a person, and it ranged from like um, Napoleon, Julius Caesar, uh, all kinds of famous people from history because. Uh, Peter Hamill, the guy that made the record, said that the idea was that everybody is a pawn. So I, you know, so when I did the pawns, I did them on a, a clear overlay, like a clear cell mm -hmm. over the top of the illustration. So you could see through the characters underneath, right? Well, the thing that he had was just an illustration. So I, I knew it wasn't mine. I mean, first of all. So I said, that's really interesting. How much do you want for it? And he wanted like 200 quid or something, you know. And I said, fascinating. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, I'm Paul Whitehead. And what I'd like you to do with this piece of art is take it into the back garden and, and burn it. And he went, what? I said, yeah, right now. Right now. I'm going to take it into the back garden and burn it because it's, it's, a, it's a fraud. It's a fake. Oh, no, I didn't mean any disregard. And I said, well, of course you meant disregard. You're trying to sell my art, you f***er. You know, what do you think you're up to? So we took it out into the backyard, and we got a little thing of lighter field, and we burned it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love that you got him to do that. That's amazing. Well, he was so embarrassed. Man. Here I was. That's my work. Yeah. How dare, how dare you, first of all, do a fake? I mean, I don't mind people copying my work. In fact, sometimes it's very flattering. But to sell it, I mean, that's something else, you know. Yeah, what do you envision, you know, the people who are still doing vinyl and making CDs, something that you can hold, what do you envision in, you know, 10, 20 years? Where do you think album art will be? It won't exist. But, you know, I'm not talking about the people who would just put, uh, you know, on, on iTunes right away, but... Was it you I was telling yesterday about 
I went to a gallery and was it you? No. Oh, I, about just before all this Corona stuff happened, I went to a, a gallery opening in uh, Bergamot Station. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to this guy and he was asking me, because I said, I'm probably going to have a show in this gallery. Oh, who are you? And he actually Googled me while he was talking to me, right? Which I thought was kind of rude. <laughs> so he Googles me while he's talking to me and I said, oh, yeah, I also make music, right? Oh, really? I oh, see it's on here. Yeah, Borg Symphony. So I said, oh, here you go. Here's a CD. And I handed him a CD oh, no. and he looked at me like I was the biggest idiot in the world, right? He said, oh, no, we don't do that. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> I said, what do you mean you don't do that anymore? He said, oh, yeah. that's, that's old-fashioned, giving people CDs. And I said to him, well, I actually put a lot of time and energy into the package for this so that when you get it, you can read all the people that are on the record and all the people that took part, and it will also give you a framework to listen to it by. Oh, no, that was old-fashioned. So I don't think album covers will even exist anymore. They won't. Mm. Maybe there'll be some holdouts. Be people You've that muted. want that sort of thing. I'm, I'm printing a couple of albums right now, and it seems that vinyl and even cassettes are com- coming back. Cassettes are coming back furiously, actually, surprisingly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, just yeah. Did, I just did a cassette cover for a guy. Wow. I was, I was blown away. And you... you uh, see, the, the, what happened was, like, I think when people used to listen to records, it was an event. You would go there, you would sit down, you would listen to the album from start to finish, you would look at the artwork, you'd read the lyrics, it'd be an experience. Yeah. I think that's that's all gone now. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. That was the idea. I mean, also the, the size as well. I mean, the record covered, a double-fold record cover was like, you were really involved in it, you know? Right, yeah. and I, I've, so many people have said to me, "Oh, I've rolled so many joints on your record covers," and a lot of people have <laughs> said they they learned English from record from record covers. Yeah, lyrics, right. I think so, it, it also it's the pace of life now. Like, who has time to sit down and listen to a whole record and right. and read the? You know, it's just so sad because it's like what a beautiful experience to just sit and focus. It's like a meditation. You you focusing only on this and then. The art, the way that no. artists wanted you to experience it. You couldn't be more correct. I, I really feel that. And and the thing is, like we we can put time to do this. Yeah, we can it's, we can make a, time for this. this a matter of intention. Right. And and you know, I used to flick through songs on the radio, you know, like all the time. Now it's just like they don't even they listen to the first four uh, bars and it's gone. Next mm-hmm. song. Yeah, yeah, and they're not interested in who's playing on what or who's doing what. You're right. Yeah, it's sad in a way. I mean, I I don't want to sound old-fashioned, but it's sad. You know, you should know what the creative experience was or who took part in this, how it happened, you know, what the story is, if there's a story. Otherwise, it's just, you know, sound. It's a glance, yeah. Um. Suzanne asks if Trisha has her own website for her work because she'd like to see more of it. Yeah, there's, there's a section on my actual website. Just paulwhitehead.com? Dot com. There's a section on that's all about Trisha. She has a whole section. So we, we kept them together because I, I don't believe in separating it. It's all part of the you know, same thing. Yeah, there's, there's some... Uh, Quite a few pieces of her work on there, and there's also like an explanation. And 
My question is, do you recall if there was a time in your life when you felt or recognized that you were an artist? I know you said you've been painting since you were a child, but was there a point where you kind of really got that that, that was who you were? I think uh, the first time I sold something. Uh, my father was a brewer and he, he was at this brewery. We lived in Whitney in Oxfordshire, right? And I was 14, and the brewery was coming out with a new beer, and he said, would you like to have a go at designing the label? Which, I mean, that was the first recognition in my life that my father thought I had any value, you know. Mm. So I said, yeah, I'll have a go at that, and I designed the label, and I got paid for it. That was like, wow, hey, <laughs> I'm an artist, right? And I think when you sell your first painting as well, and somebody actually goes, yeah, I'll give you money for that. That's like endorsement, you know? Yeah. I don't remember what my first painting was that I sold. You know. But yeah. Recognition. You kind of grow into it as well, you know. As as you sell stuff, you say, Oh, I'm really an artist now. Oh yeah, mm. this is what it's like. And then you realize that every one of us has got their own individual path as an artist, you know. So that became part of the joy for me, to follow that path, see where it would take me. Where do I go next? You know, still doing that. Well, um, Paul, thank you so much thank for you. sharing your, your, I love your soul. I love just talking with you. I love, it always makes me feel like things are not as dire as I might seem looking out my window right now on the world today. And it's just like, you know what? Yes. Remind me to be playful. Remind me to be open hearted and ask for the tomatoes and whatever I get is fine because I'm creating. And don't forget to meditate. And don't forget to meditate. Next time on Hearthside Salons, Molly Sweeney is a researcher and author who specializes in the Middle East. Her upcoming nonfiction book, You Must Understand, tells the story of the Islamic State through the eyes of civilians in Iraq and Syria. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept-to-pages writing courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, check out pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening, and stay well.